Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm super excited that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brent Brookbush and we're discussing an evidence-based approach to training, physical therapy, and so much more. As you'll quickly learn today, Dr. Brookbush is a industry-leading expert in the ability to take vast amounts of information about exercise, manual therapy, joint manipulation, movement assessment and movement screening, and so much more, and simplify it. We discuss a lot of that today, but a lot of the respect and appreciation that I have for Dr. Brookbush actually comes from the fact that I myself am a member of his website, the Brookbush Institute, and I have received a ton of valuable insight and information and knowledge through Dr. Brookbush's courses and crash series and other amazing resources that he has through his website, through his membership. So I highly recommend that you check that out because I myself am a member. I've noted a ton of benefit from it, and I think that you will too. Enjoy the show. Brent, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Excited to be here. So for people who aren't familiar with you and all the incredible stuff that you're doing over at Brookbush Institute, really redefining how we look at education in the world of physical therapy and personal training and strength and conditioning, would you mind kind of filling us in a little bit about all the amazing stuff that you do? Yeah. So, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? <laughs> As I, I was a personal trainer who became a physical therapist. Somewhere along that path, I fell in love with education or maybe developed a severe hatred for education, depending on how you look at it. And in my career as an educator, um, I would say when I was employed as an educator, I started writing down or creating a list of things that I didn't particularly like. And at a certain point, there was so many of these things that I wanted to change that I built my own company. Um, so. <laughs> That's kind of what the Brookbush Institute is, right? The Brookbush Institute was developed to optimize human movement science education, right? That's kind of important from the uh, aspect of human movement science being inclusive of all human movement professionals. And then that idea of optimizing education, you know, it wasn't just about, let me go and teach you Brent's method, right? Like, I actually don't care. Um, <laughs> Brent's method, uh, some guru's method, it doesn't matter. Uh, what we needed was a more systematic approach, a more evidence-based approach. We needed an increase in the accuracy of information that was put out there. We needed somebody in the industry who was focused on improving the delivery of education. So one thing I really try to work on and I hope comes across in our stuff is I try to deliver things in a way that is more clear, right? More engaging. Uh, hopefully improving things like retention and comprehension so that application becomes easier, right? And then, of course, with the technology piece, as things have developed over the last decade, I've been able to really try to spearhead increased access and convenience. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Where this leads, of course, the end, without just some random sales pitch, but is we now have this all-inclusive education platform that is the first in the industry to be comprehensively evidence-based with every course built on a systematic review of all relevant research. Um, 
every course you take is modular, bite-sized, can be done on computer or app. Um, you can do it, it's like one to four hour courses. And then it's all available in this like Netflix style model for $19.99 a month, which of course greatly reduces the upfront cost. Um, and although we might have to increase that cost, right, as, as inflation happens and expenses go up and stuff like that, the idea is more along the lines of this membership model idea is actually a really clever business model idea. And if you can make it work, obviously it will reduce the upfront cost of education, giving way more people access to, of course, this optimized approach to what we're doing. So, yeah, that's kind of what I did, where I was going, and now where we're at, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that you tried to optimize the approach for education by taking almost every course as like a systematic review and making it a presentable, more easy to digest thing than, say, a 300-slide PowerPoint that's all black and white. Um, yeah, now, obviously, sure. in order to sort through the amount of research that I know you do, because I've seen some of your courses have 80, 90, 100, 100 plus citations, it's got to take some In fact, time. almost all of them, yeah. Have yeah. Somewhere between 60 and 300 citations, yeah. And I've seen those numbers before, and I go, man, I wonder how much time he puts into developing his courses. So since, you, since I have you on, I have to ask, how long would it take you to develop your average course? And months. sift through all that literature. Months per yeah. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many courses do you have? 160 something. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. So when do you sleep? I don't. <laughs> no, oh um, I mean, I, I definitely work really hard. Um, apologize for the New York background noise there. <laughs> um, but. You know, I've been at this a really long time. I think that's the first thing to start with, right? Like, so, you know, I see these new grads and these new grads are hypercritical and they'll come in and they throw stones and, you know, they forget it's like, I published my first book, which had a few hundred citations, right? That was that fitness or fiction, that book that was, my intention was to write something that was generally consumable by everyone, but was research-based and used research to bust myths in the fitness industry. Like there's no such thing as lower apps or spot reduction doesn't exist, that type of stuff, right? Well, I published that book, which means I started writing it about two or three years before that. I published that book in 2011. You know, so you take that and fast forward 11 years and I just kept doing it, getting more and more and more and more efficient, right? And so that's where we're at now where it's like, yeah, I have 160 courses. They're like, how have you done that many reviews? It's like, well, I just, kept pumping out reviews like it's part of every day like writing reviews is part of my work day um and it does take a very long time and i do have some help that's also important to remember too um not every course is is super research heavy either and what i mean by that is not that it's not backed by as much research as possible but sometimes you'll do a systematic review that will support two or three practical application courses Right, so you might do some courses on, for example, activation techniques, and that also includes all of the research that you're going to end up using for gluteus medius, gluteus maximus, and tibialis anterior activation, just to be random, right? So there is some overlap, and there's some ways of, of getting things done efficiently. And like I said, I have some help, which is good, and um, you just get better with practice. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it sounds like you really developed a purposeful system to grow and scale your business. 
and it became the point where you just have to continue to repeat that system over and over and over again in order to get the results that you wanted. And I'd say the same thing can be true for any kind of functional movement evaluation. I don't care if you're a physical therapist, a chiropractor, a strength coach, personal trainer, whatever. It is essential to have the ability to look at how someone moves and understand what they're trying to tell you based on how they move. I think that's a place where your course has done a great job, especially with the squat, the charts that you have broken down and the way that you present just a basic double leg squat with overhead reach, how you can pick apart pretty much any kind of compensation from the foot and ankle all the way up to the shoulder girdle by just looking at one simple movement. Um, So for people who haven't seen your squat courses or haven't seen the charts that I referenced, would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit about that squat course and kind of your approach to analyzing the double leg squat with overhead reach? Sure. Um, Yeah, it is kind of funny how it is all the same type of thinking, right? So (laughs) uh, I am definitely a very analytical guy, very rational guy, very systematic guy, um, there is a certain humility that comes with that. Like you have to stop believing in stuff and start allowing the numbers to dictate what you're going to do. So you got to allow yourself to be outcome driven. Um, with that overhead squat assessment, you know, obviously I learned that overhead squat assessment from NASM. They weren't the first to use the overhead squat assessment, but they did take the overhead squat assessment a long way from kind of a dynamic postural assessment, which was being used in the physical therapy world for decades and kind of go, wait a second, we need to reduce this down to a few signs that are easily identifiable. Because I think you've probably seen this before where you get into a course and they talk about postural assessment and somebody will get on and be like, you see how that, 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 that little thing right there happens? And you see how this thing a little over here that happens? And and, and this thing, you know, and then you go, well, well, how did you see that? And you're like, no, look, look, it's obvious. And you go, eh. um, <laughs> and then they do a squat again. And like, they pick out three other things and then they do another squat and they pick out some other stuff, right? The big problem with postural assessments prior to this overhead squat assessment and NASM coming down and kind of starting to refine it a little bit was like, there was no reliability because everybody was just looking at posture knew there was something about this form posture movement quality thing that was important and then they would just pick up whatever random thing they wanted to pick up that they thought was important so you fast forward to nasm and they go okay we're going to take this down to i think it was at the time feet turn out feet flatten knees bow in knees bow out excessive forward lean anterior pelvic tilt right so like most of the stuff was there right uh asymmetrical weight shift was definitely something that started to come in while I was working for NASM. Arms overhead, shoulders elevated. I think at one point there was forward head. At one point there was abdominal distension. Some things came in, some things went out, right? So they started experimenting with what signs can we reliably identify? What are common signs that we, we either see or we don't? We can check some boxes. This is such a huge, important step. People just don't get that if you don't refine what you're looking for, you will never be reliable, right? And for those of you guys who forgot what reliable means, reliable means that if you do the test once and you come back and do the test again, it will be exactly the same if you were looking at the same test, right? That's important for scientific purposes. 
Not to mention if two people look at the same test, they should get the same result, right? So that's that intra-tester and inter-tester reliability. Now, where I start coming in, right? The Brookbush Institute starts coming in is when I was at NASM, I was learning the overhead squat assessment. Then you had Gray Cook and the functional movement screen. And they're using a squat assessment. And then you start seeing these other squat assessments come in through other different education platforms. I noticed one primary huge problem. They did a very poor job of making the connection between I saw this, so I should do this if I want to improve my outcomes. That connection between assessment and intervention was just super poor. And that's common across the board, I would say. Is oh, I've yeah. seen physical therapists who, you know, they can really nail down a diagnosis and then they hit someone with a cookie cutter intervention approach of, well, we're going to do sideline clams, we're going to do bridge, we're going to do pelvic tilts, and we're going to do piriformis stretch because those four things will just fix everything. And it's like, you literally nailed your assessment. You nailed your diagnosis. And then the follow through was absolute crap for lack of a better way to put it. Because when you're in PT school, you don't learn that. No, of course not. It sounds, it sounds crazy, but um, <laughs> yeah, like you learn all these diagnostic skills, right? Supposedly we don't make diagnosis as physical therapists, but then you learn all these diagnostic tests, these special tests, right? Which are nothing more than diagnostic tests. Anyway, um, yeah, you get out there. You know, and then there's like, there's like specialties in physical therapy, like the SFS and the OCS, where they teach you all of these exams. And again, what do they do for interventions? Like you said, it's like the same old school cookie cutter stuff that you've always seen. So I started looking at this stuff and obviously we're like going through time very quickly here, right? So I start looking at this stuff and I'm like, wait a second, how do we analyze these signs? Which was starting to happen at NASM, but like, it wasn't enough follow through to like map out everything that was happening. So for example, we would talk about how feet flatten meant the foot was kind of everting. That would make sense that maybe the everters were overactive. So you should foam roll your peroneals. Okay. Or infibularis muscles, whatever you want to call it. Okay. That's great. But what's underactive? So that would be tibialis anterior and tibialis posterior. Well, what about all of the other muscles at the ankle? Are you telling me that only your fibularis, tibialis anterior, and tibialis posterior are affected? What about your FHL, your FDL, your EHL, your EDL, right? What about your soleus and your gastroc? What a part of that is important? What about the joints, right? What about arthrokinematics, right? So you have glide of the talus on the tibia. You have motion of the calcaneus on the talus, there was all of this incomplete information. Like there was some start to analysis, but not a complete analysis. And why this becomes a problem is then if you don't have a complete analysis, how do you develop an intervention, right? What are you trying to affect and how? Well, I'm trying to fix everter and DAW, so I'm going to do single leg stance. Well, what does single leg stance have to do with eversion? Right, right. Well, I'm going to have them, I'm going to have them stand accurately right? Have them stand with a good foot position. They'll work on that and, and, and then they'll get better. And I'll be like, okay, so what was your assessment? What was your reassessment? What was the objective measures you would get? And I would start doing reassessments and I'd be like, that didn't do jack. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Yeah. I'm not saying single leg balance in this case is bad. I'm not trying to like pigeonhole anything else. The the more important thing is the the concepts here, right? Right. I mean, the biggest thing is you never got to the root cause. So maybe they're everting a ton because they have limited ankle dorsiflexion and you didn't address the talocryl joint. You're just trying to fix eversion, uh, like you said, with a single leg balance intervention. You need well, to get to the root cause. I would actually say that that's not the right way to go either. Okay. Here's why. Okay. Root cause still begs the question, mm -hmm. makes a flawed assumption that we're looking for one thing. When in reality, it's a cluster. It's a system, right? There's a <laughs> systematic approach. Your human movement system can't be pulled apart, right? If I, for example, we're going to this feet flat thing, right? Mm -hmm. If I release my peroneals, is that a bad technique? No, but to your point, if they lack dorsiflexion, I might have to also improve dorsiflexion through something like a tibio-talar mobilization or maybe a release and stretch of the calf, right? So I need to do something to improve dorsiflexion. Well, what would have happened if I improved dorsiflexion and didn't release the everters? Well, okay, wait I, a second. We just said that the peroneals might be overactive. So I could improve dorsiflexion and still end up in the same position where I improved something, but my outcome didn't get better because I left something behind. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. This all gets into like information theory and sorting, right? It's just a big deal where you see sorting as a big deal is, is mostly in the tech world because when you talk about computer programming, if things aren't sorted the right way, like programs won't run the right way. And you kind of have to start getting corrective exercise, physical therapy, and even sports performance training to look the same way. You need to start thinking about what are your inputs and outputs and what is the system you're trying to build upon, right? Right. So we're going and back, go ahead. I was gonna say, so is that what led you to the cluster system that you developed uh, when it came to squat compensation patterns? Kind of. I would actually say that a systematic approach is what Mike Clark, the former CEO of NASM, brought to the world of corrective exercise, right? He's the one who brought the release, lengthen, activate, integrate, which anybody worth anything is currently using some form of, right? They might be using less or more or whatever, but um, you know, we get this idea of you're gonna have to address both mobility and recruitment together if you wanna make things really, really good. So, with that being said, again, there was just holes. It was like he took a big step and, and granted, like this is occurring over 20 years. Like it takes a long time to put all this stuff together. So we were going down this path of, you gotta take an assessment. You gotta make it reliable. You gotta figure out what the signs on the assessment mean the more comprehensive your analysis the better you're going to be able to create an approach to fix that right so here's what i saw here's my complete analysis of the problem here's how i address all of those issues and then of course the last piece right is we need reassessment so that we know if all of that worked and if we can get this system together of assessment, analysis, intervention, measurement via reassessment, and then refine 
Now we start getting a systematic approach that continues to get better and better and better and better and better. Whereas before with holes, it's like filling up a leaky bucket, right? Like you can keep trying stuff. Oh, I think that should be better, right? But it doesn't get you anywhere. Like, it's like we were talking about, well, maybe instead of the peroneals, I need to work on ankle dorsiflexion. And when you did the peroneals, you didn't get great outcomes. When you improve dorsiflexion, you didn't get great outcomes. And then you put two of the, the two of them together and your outcomes got a little better, right? But you keep trying, right? So maybe now we need to add activation techniques, tibialis anterior acti activation, tibialis posterior activation. Oh, now my outcomes get a little better. Oh, wait, now I'm gonna add joint mobilizations. Okay, so I'm gonna release, I'm gonna lengthen, right? So release gastroxoleus, fibularis, Maybe if I'm a manual therapist, I can get into some of those long toe flexors, right? And then I'm going to add a joint mobilization here, affect any altered joint stiffness. Boom, now I got another piece that could improve this process. I'm going to add a lengthening technique. I'm going to go stretch my calves. Good. All right, we're starting to build. How comes we're getting better, right? <clears throat> then I do these two activation techniques. Boom, tibialis anterior activation, tibialis posterior activation. Then I have this brilliant idea, right, from... Uh, a lecture that Mike Clark was giving where he was inhibiting the TFL during a gluteus medius activation by doing hip extension. And I went, well, why not apply that to all activation exercises? That brings back in the FHL, FDL, EHL, EDL, and we start using toe flexion and toe extension to reciprocally inhibit synergistically dominant muscles during our activation techniques. So we add that into the system, right? And of course, while I'm doing this, right, adding these pieces, I'm continuously reassessing based on outcomes, right? If I don't get better outcomes, I don't do it. Trust me, there was plenty of things I failed at. <laughs> Way more things I failed at than I got right. That's always how it goes, right? So then we go, okay, we got activation techniques with inhibition of our synergistically dominant muscles. Now we need integration techniques. Now we can bring back things like single leg balance. Good, that starts improving things. Then we use more multi-joint movement patterns, reactive drills, that starts improving things. And before you know it, you start building out a much more comprehensive system. And in that comprehensive system, start getting much, much better outcomes. Realize up to this point, we might've been looking at fairly small improvements. You know, when you add a mobilization technique, a joint mobilization techniques to release and lengthening, you get a little bit better results. But if you add joint mobilization to release and lengthening and a couple activation techniques, now you get a lot better results, right? And then you start adding the reconditioning piece and you get better carryover. Um, so that process, right, is, is what we keep doing. Now, we could take this a step further. And I think this is what we were commenting on at the beginning of this, is you take all of this systematic approach and now what's feeding this system and refining it further is massive amounts of data in the form of research, right? So now I'm taking research and I'm going, wait a second, let me check this against this research and see if there's not new avenues for us to go, new techniques to start, or things where maybe my hypothesis wasn't accurate. I was getting a good result, but maybe not for the reason I thought I was getting a good result. Right, right. So we started Pushing, moving in that direction. Yeah, refining your own line of thinking and recognizing that just because you do something, it might have effects that you didn't necessarily think of. Like, you know, take the manual therapy thing that you mentioned a bit ago. Well, maybe you improved range of motion, 
but maybe they're moving better because manual therapy can also stimulate mechanoreceptors and reduce pain. So maybe they're moving better because they have less pain instead of actually improving motion. Unlikely. So I like how I like how you mentioned there's so many different reasons you can get the result. And sometimes you might get the result you want, but not for the reason you thought. Sure. And the result is the the big part. I mean, with the manual therapy thing, you're kind of actually <laughs> moving away from the research, right? Um, the, you know, the research shows that like manual therapy is great for increasing mobility. Um, as far as the pain thing, that's a whole different bag of... <laughs> I, I'm not a pain science guy by any means. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it ends up we're not just... This whole information theory sorting systematic approach thing that I'm talking about right now, you know, that I'm kind of delving into, like it has a lot of rabbit holes that you can get into. And, you know, one of the things I was just teaching the integrated manual therapy course, and I talk about how, what is the approach that we should use? And I'm like, is it the approach that goes after the things that are most highly correlated with the pain we're trying to treat and everybody's like yeah of course and i went absolutely not <laughs> and they were like why i was like because your intervention should be based on effect size right the amount of change you can make not the amount of correlation to the thing you're trying to change so back to the pain science, because this all comes back to the system and why haven't we started talking about pain science education in our courses, right? Like there's a reason. So it ends up that you can look at what gets you the best outcomes. And we are really, really good at doing things like improving mobility, improving strength, and to a certain degree, improving recruitment patterns, you know, like altering knees bowing. What we're really bad at is this, right? Like pain science education by itself is completely ineffective. And it's only mildly effective when used as an adjunct therapy. So you go, should we be all doing pain science education? Well, but the research shows that, that, that uh, psychosocial effects are 60% of somebody's pain experience. They have the highest correlation of pain of anything. And I'm like, yeah, but you suck at affecting it. Deal with it, right? Like this is the outcomes. We're not talking about whether the pain science education stuff that's out there is good or bad. We're talking about how effective is it? And the truth of the matter is, is we're not behavioral scientists. We can only change this so much, but we can have a massive effect on this other thing. So, you know, the way I pitch it back to my classes is like, do you want to go after something where like, let's say you can reduce 50% of the biomechanical problems that make up 40% of the pain experience? Or do you want to go after the 10% of the psychosocial problems that make up 60% of the experience? And if you guys are doing the math, half of 40 is 20, right? <laughs> 10% of 60 is six. <laughs> so I know which one I'm going after, you know, and am I saying that you can't do pain science education? No, but you should be prioritizing based on effect sizes. Um, that which brings up another point that kind of goes back to the other point that we were talking about, which is like, you don't have to use the either or approach either. You're not looking for a root cause. You are looking for an effective intervention plan, which is an integrated approach. You don't have to pick one thing. 
you know, the only reason I was talking about prioritization is you only have one hour. So, or maybe 30 minutes, depending on where you treat in some cases, 15 minutes, if you're a physical therapist working in a mill, but, um, you know, you have to prioritize your time accordingly, you know, and it might be very possible that you're going to do release, mobilize, lengthen, activate, integrate, reactive activation, home exercise program with a handout on pain science education, all in one wonderful, beautiful session because you're efficient and you have your system set up. Fantastic. I love it. Right. It's just how you kind of go about putting this all together. Right. And of course, going back to the thinking that we're talking about, are you assessing, are you doing some level of analysis? Are you putting together a plan? Are you implementing that plan effectively? Are you reassessing and continuing to refine the system over and over and over again? Right, right. I love that you keep bringing up the importance of the system because I'm a firm believer if you don't have a system that you approach things with, then you're just going in and throwing crap against the wall and hoping something eventually sticks. How are you going to get better at analyzing someone's squat if you don't approach it the same way each time? It's just, it's not going to happen. And to your point, too, on the whole chasing the root cause, or is there even a root cause? I mean, can we really, like, can you look at someone and say to them, the reason that your hip hurts is because you pronate when you run or you overpronate when you squat, when they've probably moved that way their entire life and they probably haven't had pain their entire life? So, how confident can you be? That, you know, you picking up this one thing that's just started affecting someone is actually the only thing that's causing them to have, you know, the dysfunction that they're coming to see you with. You just made two more assumptions, though. So somebody comes in with hip pain and you're saying, well, they pronate. Now they have hip pain. How can I be confident that that's contributing to their hip pain? Well, you don't know that they've been running like that their whole life. You don't. What, you're going to believe your patient? (laughs) that they started pronating they've been i've been running flat-footed my whole life maybe maybe you haven't right you're also forgetting time Mm -hmm. you're also forgetting probabilities you're also forgetting the amounts of stress right so a lot of these chronic pains that we're talking about right these chronic pains that have onsets from long-term compensation patterns you know this is this is a a a long-term wear pattern that starts to develop or we might only have a slight imbalance between the amount of tissue damage we're doing and the rate your body can heal it, right? So maybe at first when they're young and they're only running five miles a week, their body can basically repair all of the tissue they're damaging with this poor motor pattern, right? And as they get older and their recovery rate starts to decrease or they start increasing the amount of activity they're doing, increasing the amount of wear, eventually that wear starts beating out how much they can fix. You then have to ask the next question, how much wear do they have to have? This is where pain science becomes really helpful. How much wear do they have to have before their body starts perceiving that wear as a threat and they start registering it as pain? Because you're continuously damaging tissues everywhere all the time right whether it's sitting on your chair you might be creating some some damage to 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 tissues in your your backside that you never even notice because they're like damaged from ischemia and then repaired before you wake up the next day right like at what point do we 
we start getting past this point where all of a sudden now, okay, now I'm registering it as pain. Well, right. right. The only way to look at this in a systematic way is probabilities. And if, if COVID taught us anything, <laughs> it's that the world is not very good at statistics. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think people don't like to think in probabilities. I think it like messes with their head for some reason. They want everything, yes or no. Well, somebody has pronation and they never experienced pain, so that obviously can't be the reason. No, that's the fundamental attribution fallacy. You found one example of somebody who doesn't fit your data, so you assume all of the other data is false. Yeah, that's not how probabilities work, man. I'm sorry. There's always outliers. And like, let's say, let's go back to your example of the hip. How do we know pronation was the reason they started having hip pain? Well, I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. But I might be able to say that there's a correlation between pronation and hip pain. And correlation always equals causation, right? <laughs> Let's not go there either. Like, I can just keep tearing this apart because yep, well, that's the wrong, that's the, we'll come back to that. That is the well, wrong question to ask. And I hate that, that analogy so bad. That was a little but, bit of sarcasm on my part. Yeah. We'll come back to that though, because the right question to ask is how do you prove causation? Not that correlation and causation are not related, but let's go back to the correlation thing. Let's say, pro how do I know that pronation was the contributing factor to this person's hip pain? Well, what other information do I have to go on? Okay. So am I looking at an overhead squat and the only thing I see is feet flat and turn out on that side, right? Or am I looking at an overhead squat and feet flat and turnout is one of several signs, including knees bow in, asymmetrical weight shift, excessive forward lean, right? So now I have multiple correlations. I'm going to go after the strongest correlation because that is going to give me the best chance of addressing this issue. How do I know it's going to work? I don't. How do you know anything's going to work? Right? These people have come to me, well, how do you know if pronation... And your, your example, obviously, isn't your example. It's a general example. People yep. do this to me all the time. Well, I'm going to address this pronation thing because that's what I see and that's what I think has the highest correlation based on research, based on what I'm seeing in this person's assessment. If you're not going to go after pronation, what evidence do you have that the thing you're going after is more strongly correlated? Oh. <laughs> right? Right. Like, I don't care that you have another idea of how this hit pain was generated or how you should intervene. You can have other ideas. That's fine. There's only one thing that matters at the end of the day. Outcomes. It's not your idea versus my idea. The only person who matters is the patient, right? The only thing that matters is what's going to get them the best possible result. So if your way works better, that's off to you. I will definitely go, okay, you win. Because I just don't care. It's about numbers. It's not about ideas. People always, you know, I got asked the question once, well, how do you know what the best possible approach is? Everybody has their opinions. It's math, right? We can, we can actually have a best possible outcome, right? We can actually have best possible average effect size or best possible average outcome or 
most reliable average outcome. These are numbers that we can put, you know, we were just talking about reliability. People think reliable is like, is somebody reliable? But when we talk about it from the terms of, do you see the same thing when you do a test twice, either two different people or you, you can measure that mathematically. What is the correlation between the first time and the second time? If it's 100%, you're 100% reliable, right? That's a number. Effect sizes are measurable. You know, we could use something like a validated outcome measure. And granted, I know validated outcome measures aren't great person-to-person -person comparison, but there are pretty good when we talk about hundreds or thousands of people being compared on these things. So if Daniel, me, and you are going toe-to-toe -to -toe over the next two years, and we're going to compare all of our lower extremity patients, okay? And my functional outcome measures are on average 13 points higher six months out. We don't have to ask which one of us is better. We know that's not opinions. It's not about Brent's ideas or the best ideas. Who cares what I think? Only thing that matters is outcomes. Now I do want to hit on this correlation isn't causation. I'm just taking down all the rabbit holes here. I'm I know, right? <laughs> correlation isn't causation is like the, I don't actually read research. So I'm going to hit you with some shit that like you can't come back at me with because it's a fact, but it doesn't actually mean anything, right? It's a nonsensical answer to anything. Correlation doesn't mean causation. Correct. Correlation isn't causation. Right question to ask, though, is how do you prove causation? Because if you don't have an answer to that question, then all you're doing is saying, I won't accept anything you say, ha ha ha, I win. Right? No evidence is good enough. So therefore, I defer to my opinion. Have you noticed that's how all these arguments go? I'm going to dismiss all of your evidence. I'm going to dismiss all of your research so that we can get back to my opinion. Opinion is the weakest form of evidence. I don't care what the correlation is. Weak correlation in research, better than your strongly held opinion every time. Okay? Like, we have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, what was the levels of evidence all about? What's the scientific method all about? There ends up that the way you imply causation, because you really can't prove causation, so to speak, at least not in a scientific sense. The way we imply causation is essentially a series of correlations. So, <laughs> you know, if we start seeing all these different correlations between a hypothesis about how something works and it actually working, right? Then we start to believe that the hypothesis is true and is the cause, you know? Um, going back to your story about the hip, you know, if I have, a 30% chance of pronation being a correlation, uh, a 30% chance of feet turnout being a correlation, knee valgus is 15%, an asymmetrical weight shift is 25%. This is, you know, what we start putting together over time is like, there seems to be this lower extremity pattern of feet flattened turnout, knees bow in, potentially with an asymmetrical weight shift. That is a pretty strong correlation to hip pain with some other factors that I'm not so good at treating, i.e. psychosocial factors like unemployment, depression, uh, catastrophization, right? Like 
those all things probably contribute. I'm just not very good at treating them. So me personally, as a physical therapist, I'm not going down that rabbit hole. Right. Right. So you get what I'm saying? Like, can you ever prove that pronation was the cause of the hip pain? I guess scientifically, there's a point to be made that correlation is a causation, but then what was the cause? How do you expect me to prove that? And if I have multiple sources of evidence that are kind of pointing in the same direction, at what point are you just going to give in and be like, okay, that seems like a pretty good cause, right? right. So there's actually something called the Branford Hill criteria, which people should be aware of. He was an epistemologist, a researcher, a, a statistician, and there's the Pr Branford Hill criteria for um, causation. And he kind of goes to these different points. He even points out a really interesting thing from a logic perspective, which is, we don't need to know how something works to know that it works, which means you don't even need to know the why, right? Like, which always trips people out. Like, I'm like, people are like, well, how does that work? And I'm like, I don't know. And you still do it? Yeah. Well, how, how are you okay with that? I've never seen anybody get injured from it and the outcomes are pretty good, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't have to be a more complicated than that. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. Occam's razor. Yes, the, which is another weird. We just keep talking about assumptions. So even Occam's razor has an interesting thing. Everybody thinks Occam's razor says simpler is better. That's actually not what Occam's razor is. Occam's razor is given two equally valid hypotheses for how something works. The one that makes the least assumptions is most likely to be accurate. Right. So that does bring me to a point that a couple of my friends really love this point. Sometimes there's reasons to be purposely vague. This is a sorting or a categorization thing that more people should be aware of, which is, you know, sometimes when you start trying to explain things more, you start trying to add more details to something, you actually become more and more inaccurate. It's kind of like when you learned in math class, that if you add, or let's say you divide two numbers that go out to one decimal place, your answer cannot be more accurate than out to one decimal place, right? Mm -hmm. You might have additional decimal places that pop out on your calculator, but because the inputs that you put into that little math problem didn't go past one decimal place in their accuracy, your answer can't be more accurate than the information you put in, right? So if we talk about like, let's say joint mobilization techniques. Now I have an article, a course or a research review where I talk about all of the different effects correlated with mobilizations and manipulations. But when I talk about what do joint mobilizations and manipulations do, you know what I tell people? They reduce joint stiffness. You well, mean... how do you think they do that? <laughs> I think there's a lot of reasons they could do that. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So they reduce joint stiffness. Good. And you're okay with that? Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm 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 at peace with understanding that joint mobilizations reduce joint stiffness, and that's why I'm doing this. Well, how do they reduce pain? Um, I have some pretty good theories. I think having to do with the ferritation and pain science, and you know, nociception and recruitment patterns and all of this wonderful stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go back to my outcomes, right? Like my outcomes get better. So 
generally you shouldn't chase pain. You should chase objective outcome measures and your pain will decrease as outcome, your objective outcome measures get better. Right. Have I just sp spun into nerdland like beyond? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, did we just dive into like physical therapy matrix here? Or... <laughs> kind, of, kind of, bro. Um, <laughs> Man, I, I should have worn my boots here if we were going to be getting this deep. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely so much out there. You know, and I read a ton. I, I, I mean, I that's, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's undoubted. You know, I read 50 to 100 books a year on Audible listen to 150 to 100 books a year on audible and obviously running a company you know I, I have to be able to manage a web development department i manage a digital marketing department i've had to come up with systems for better content development and it's interesting that a lot of that stuff has helped to inform how i view intervention rehab sports performance in a very positive way like in a lot of ways our industry has a lot of catching up to do mm -hmm. like what they're doing with decision-making theory things like game theory you probably heard of game theory game theory absolutely applies to what we do we call it we call it clinical decision making right mm -hmm. but in reality clinical decision making should reflect game theory we should be thinking about outcomes and what the best way to get there is not rationalizing what we feel we should be doing after we do an initial diagnostic assessment, right? Like there's, there's artificial intelligence, right? Like it gets into even deeper decision-making theory, right? Like how are you making these decisions? Is it inferential? Is it differential? What Boolean logic are you using? Is it an and, or, if, then, right? All of that stuff comes into play and we could it's so much better outcomes. We could be so much better for our patients if we could just be humble enough to let go of our belief systems and allow some of this math and logic to dictate our next path. What would you say the best system or approach for them to be uh, to implement that in their practice would be? Would you say using like a simple one and zero binary code kind of system? Like I'm going to look at the squat anteriorly. Do I see the feet flatten? Yes or no. Do I see the knees bow in? Yes or no. Do I see the knees bow out? Yes or no. And then going over to the side and doing the same thing. Would you say that that would be a good approach or what would you, how would you go about um, proposing people who want to start implementing the squat assessment in their day-to-day -day practice, but want to do it with a more logical, simple mean, how would they, how should they do that? Yeah, you kind of, it's funny, like you, you, you kind of went down one, one thing and then said another as you kind of came out of it, but like, <laughs> had to catch like, myself. yeah, what, what do people, how should people create their own approach? They shouldn't, I don't, you know, I hope it's very clear on this call. Like I don't have my own approach. I think there are some unique aspects of the Brookbush Institute. I would like to take pride in some innovative solutions I have come up with to fill in some of the holes or the gray areas like we were talking about before. But at the end of the day, you're not walking in to a new science. There are right. brilliant people who came before us, right? There are people who literally have spent their whole lives Right. People who, you know, one of my mentors, 
where I got a chance to meet and have a cup of coffee with uh, Leon Chetal just passed a couple of years ago. That man spent his entire life studying human movement. 70 plus textbooks published. Hundreds of peer reviewed published articles. He started a research journal, right? But you want to come in as Joe Schmo, new guy on the block and create your own system, right? Really? Like that's what you want to do? I mean, why reinvent the wheel? You know, right. they say a smart guy learns from others, but a, what is it? A smart guy learns from his mistakes, but a brilliant guy learns from the mistakes of others, right? So if you keep that in mind, let's go all the way back to kind of where you were headed. How do I think people should start? Yeah, they should start looking to somebody else who's been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, the overhead squat assessment has been beaten up for at least two and a half decades. Right, 25 years, which is longer than a lot of these people have been alive, much less in the industry. <laughs> I feel like I'm old all of a sudden. <laughs> um, you know, so yes, overhead squat assessment is a great place to start. Now, you mentioned overhead squat assessment is a binary exam, right? So it's, you know, you either have a sign or you don't. Mm -hmm. um, there is something to that. Right? You have binary measures versus continuous interval measures. We use goniometry as our continuous interval measure, and there's reasons to have both of those. Um, but before we go that far, I think just having an assessment that you do consistently, like the overhead squat assessment, grab the overhead squat assessment template, use it every time, force yourself to use it every time, get really, really good at using it the way it is, right? then add another assessment once you get good at that one, right? Start building up your assessment repertoire. Start writing down ideas you have about maybe other assessments you want to try or things that you think are missing or things that you don't know about. Again, we're going back to taking a systematic approach to yep. learning new stuff, right? You know, I have a, a little speech and, and I think I even put it in a blog article somewhere called give yourself five minutes to suck, right? So if you took like a 55 minute session, let's, look, let's say you're a new physical therapist, new trainer. For 55 minutes, just do what you've always done. Right? Confidence relates competence. And I think one mistake that a lot of educators make is they're like, okay, you learned my way, now you do my way, right? And I come in and I go, look, I'm gonna ask you to do two things. Assess, address, reassess. Okay. So first thing I want you to do is just come up with some sort of a system, system that you're using of. You used an assessment, you did an intervention, and you actually tried to assess whether it worked. That's important. Okay. Didn't have an effect on the objective measure that you were trying to measure. Not just did somebody feel better. You can rub somebody on the back and they'll feel better. You can tell them it's going to be okay and they'll feel better. I'm talking like, I want a real assessment, then whatever intervention you want to use, and then that assessment again to see if it actually had an effect. The second thing I want you to do is start slowly integrating new interventions into every session so that you start learning what works and what doesn't using this assess, address, reassess framework, right? So people come into this, like let's say the integrated manual therapy certification or the human movement specialist or corrective exercise certification and they learn all these new techniques 
And I'm like, obviously, what I'm going to tell you to do is to do what Brent would do, right? Like, we're going to get little little rings that say do what Brent would do and little <laughs> shirts that say do what Brent would do. Like, no, no, I don't, I'm not a messiah. Like, I'm not trying to go in that direction. I don't want you to go in that direction. But you probably learned a few techniques you really like, okay? So why don't you start on Monday morning? I want you to start with an assessment, start with one of those techniques, and reassess. First five minutes of the session. During the reassessment, you're going to either see if it worked or it didn't. You're essentially going to respond the same way with your client. Wow, that's awesome. Let's move on, right? Doesn't matter whether it worked or not, as long as you learned something. Your client doesn't know. Your client knows what they you told them, right? You know, oh, how dare you do that to your clients? You've been doing that your whole career to your client, just trying shit out. So all we're doing now is we're measuring it, okay? And some things don't work and some things do. What I'm asking you is to start getting systematic about trying things. So you give yourself this five minutes to suck and you go with the 55 minutes you've always done. Now let's say we even get more systematic and we pick one lower body technique and one upper body technique, right? So if you see a lower body thing that you wanna fix, you try this one technique. You see upper body stuff you wanna fix, you try that technique. And for every client, you're doing one or the other. Well, you think you'd be comfortable with those two techniques by the end of a week? Okay, good. Next week, switch it up. Pick two more new techniques. By the end of a 12-month period, right, you've pretty much added an hour, if not two, of completely new techniques you didn't have to your repertoire. Now imagine what that looks like over a year, or two years, or 10 years, or God knows how many years. <laughs> um, right? So, you know, I think that would be the approach I would take, right? Start with an assessment, start integrating a couple new techniques. And before you know it, you'll, you'll pick up like why somebody like me has this like integrated template of release, mobilize, lengthen, activate, integrate, condition, follow up, right? Where all those things fit, how every box in my template works, why those boxes are there, right? It all came from experimentation and research and outcomes and all of that fun stuff. You just gotta figure out how to fill out the first box to start. We could say the same thing about building a business. We could say the same thing about working out. We could say the same thing about life. Um, you know, remember that life is probabilistic. Some things work, some things don't. Just because something didn't work the first time doesn't mean it's not gonna work the second time. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, hundred percent. And you hit on a huge point that. I like to echo for new grads because I was in your shoes not too long ago. And one of the things I learned very quickly is you are not going to come out of the gates and just blow everything up and come up with your own system, your own approach, your own way of doing things. And it's one of those things that it can be difficult to check your pride, especially when you're, you know, the new hotshot person in an area, you know, out to prove yourself. But at the end of the day, you want to prove yourself through results, not prove yourself by, well, he does cool stuff. Um, so if you want results, I've found, at least in my own experience, it's been easier to stick with what works. And I continue to go back to um, the same things over and over and over again, because I keep getting results with them 
instead of, um, as you mentioned, there's value in trying new things, but I don't try 10 new things with a patient every time I see them, because right. how do you know which one of those 10 worked? Um, right. So I find that I go back to the same, um, say the same eight things. And then again, cycle one or two different things through, like you just mentioned, it's more of a systematic approach as we've talked this whole time. And it's not a, I'm going to come up here, graduate, because now I have my doctorate, I can do whatever I want and just blow everything up and come up with my own system. That's that's not how it works, unfortunately. And I know at least for me, when I was a new grad, I'll admit, I had this thought that I was going to be able to just kind of do things my way. And unfortunately, uh, my way is a little bit of a combination of a little bit of FMS, a little bit of Phil Plisky, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And it's not necessarily just, you know, stuff that I've come up with on my own because, well. Chances are you haven't come up with anything on your own. Probably not, no. <laughs> that's, and, and, that, and that's a humbling thing to think about too. And, I, and I'm not trying to, to disparage you, Daniel, but like you gotta remember <laughs> there's a hundred years of history that came before us. Right. I can't tell you how many times I came across, quote unquote, one of my techniques in a textbook that was five decades old, right? I just right. came to the same conclusion five decades later. I didn't, right? Like if you give, if you give enough people the same information, the same ideas will start popping up in different places. Right. So, you know, I think as an educator, let me throw this out. You're not part of the first intelligent generation. You're not. Chances are you're not the most intelligent person in this generation. Okay. That's just, these are just mathematical facts. I'm not saying I'm the most intelligent person in the generation either, nor am I saying I'm personally more intelligent than the people who came before me. I'm really making the point of we come from a rich history of a growing science of movement professions or movement professions, right? You are part of this. You are part of a community. You wanna have a positive impact on that community. And the best way to have a positive impact is to learn as much as you can and try to innovate in the holes and gray areas. If you think you're gonna come in and blow this shit up, you're wrong. You're not going to do it. You're, you're, there's no way to do that, right? Everybody who came before you was not wrong. I've had, I've had like the craziest things questioned. Well, how do you know reciprocal inhibition exists? Dude, a Nobel prize was given for reciprocal inhibition almost a hundred years ago. Where are you? What did you learn in school? Well, how do you know bio, biomechanics is stupid? Really? Pain science is the thing to go with. What? The BPS model is older than Richardson, Hodges and Hyde's. So how do you, Square that circle, right? Point being is there's like all this great stuff that came before you. You're just here to contribute. You're here to make a positive impact. Now, as an educator, I know I'm gonna sound like an old man right now, <laughs> right? And I'm actually not that old, but I have been, I've been in the fitness industry for 25 years, right? I've been teaching for 20. So with that being said, this new generation has to be the most combative, contrarian generation I have come across. 
I think being a skeptic is great. I think being asking questions is great. I think critically evaluating is great. But acting like an asshole is not. Okay. <laughs> if you look at somebody, any professor, let's take me out of this, and you think you can challenge that professor by going, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're talking about, you obviously haven't read the research. And meanwhile, that doctor has 20 years of experience on you. You just did two things wrong. Number one, there is probably no chance that you could have done as much reading in your lifetime as that doctor has, no matter how smart you are. We're just talking about brute force here. If somebody has 20 years of experience on you, chances are they've read more, they've seen more patients than you have, they've gone to more courses, you know, they have their reasons for doing things. Here's the primary point I want to make, though. Rather than taking the opportunity to learn, you just slammed a door that will never open for you ever again. Okay? If you disrespect somebody, what do you think the chances are they're going to want to help you? Right? <laughs> Nothing. Right. It, it's like... That's not how it works. <laughs> whereas if you... Let's, let's say... And I know it's hard. I see shit that I disagree with all the time that gets me all fume and mad. But if instead of going, screw you, buddy, like I went up and went, hey, man, I don't know if I agree with that sentiment. And here's why. I'm having a hard time figuring out how this works. Can you explain to me what your thinking process is? Right? Or maybe even you could take it down a notch from that. Hey man, how did you come to that conclusion? That's a really interesting point. I guarantee you will learn more and get farther in life than a lot of these contrarians who are like on social media thinking it's okay to troll. Just to throw this out here, guys, I think the next trend we're going to see, and it's already starting to happen in politics, which is why I think it's, and, and this whole contrarian movement started with politics and social media and has filtered into our profession. And I think the rest of it will too. I think there's a lot of people in the next generation, I'm talking 30 years and younger, who think slander and liable is okay if it's on social media. <laughs> it's not. And I think what's going to start happening is we're going to see people get sued. We're going to see careers ruined because you just outwardly in a public forum lied, misrepresented, tried to disseminate false information about a company or a person, you made it public so it's easy to prove, and now you're going to get roasted. Right? So there's, there's two polar opposite reasons why you should not be acting like a jerk online. Okay? Don't get sued. Eventually, this is going to start happening. It'll happen with the big guys first, of course. Right? I think there's been people who've made their careers from slander, and these are really the guys I'm talking about. But also just think about it this way. Everybody who's been in it a long time probably has something they can teach you. Right? I mentioned Leon Shetau. The weird thing about Leon Shetau and me is I don't use a lot of Leon Shetau stuff. People are like, wow, so why is he your mentor? Well, Leon Shetau did something that is probably more important. He demonstrated to me that it was possible to produce the amount of evidence-based content that I would need to produce 
for the Brookbush Institute to reach the objectives of optimizing education in our field. That actually has a far larger impact than anything that anybody has ever taught me. Just knowing that Leon Shetao existed is a wonderful thing. Now, when I look at some of Leon Shetao's techniques that I don't actually do, and I had coffee with him and I got to meet this guy who I absolutely revere, I didn't tell him why I didn't do things. <laughs> I asked him why he did things. And this guy was almost 80 years old when he passed. Maybe he was a little over 80 years old when he passed. He knew so much stuff, right? You learn so much just by taking things in. I don't know, like be a sponge, not a jerk face. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you mentioning your reading background, that's like Dale Carnegie 101. It's better to be a interested party than the one who's trying to be interesting all the time. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, even now, like, what does the Brookbush Institute do? Well, does for it... you, you have the three certifications, you have hundreds of courses, and you provide insight to all your members. Do uh, I provide insight? Well, indirectly through the courses that you've developed. Is it my courses that I've developed? I believe most of them were yours. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm talking about ownership and authorship. Sure. Sure. But here's my point, man. Like, I'm not, you know, uh, the Brookbush Institute isn't a marketing platform for my ideas. Right. I am trying to build a system that provides a service for my colleagues. I serve my colleagues. I give freely, I work hard for them, right? Well, maybe not quite freely, but as close to freely as I possibly can, right? I work hard for them. I don't dictate to them. And honestly, the service I provide is I gather massive amounts of data and I shrink wrap it into something that's consumable. That's the service I provide, right? I don't go, Brent said, to your point, more of what I do is go, okay, when I read these 300 research studies, what are the trends they're pointing to? What is the practical application? And how would that fit into a systematic approach? That is a service, right? That's work I am doing on behalf of my colleagues who are too busy treating to possibly be, this is one of the big jokes of the evidence-based movement, my colleagues are way too busy treating to be truly evidence-based, right? To be truly evidence-based, you'd have to read thousands upon thousands upon thousands of research studies. That's what you would have to do, which doesn't leave a whole lot of time for practicing. So obviously what I'm doing is doing all of that reading for you guys, right? And some practicing, of course, I still practice, but um, I do all that reading for you guys and I, and I keep doing it. All right, bro, well, we want a course on this. Okay, okay. Yeah, let me let me look into that. Boom, two or three months later, knock out another course. Right now I'm working on, uh, what, what am I working on? Number of sets per exercise. It's an important little cute little variable, right? How many sets should you do? Is one set as good as multiple sets? Is multiple sets better than a single set? When is multiple sets better than a single set? How many sets should you do per exercise? Is there an upper limit? Who should be doing more sets, right? Like these are all questions that we're gonna get to answer. And then we'll have one more box in the little template filled out 
with an evidence-based approach, right? It's a service, I'm not dictating. I'm just going, okay, you don't have time to figure out what's that box is supposed to be. I'll figure it out for you. That's fine. Right? And then you guys can pay me $19.99 a month and find out that and all of the other information we've provided. I, I like the way that you uh, broke that down and explained that. And I think that speaks volumes to the point of, you know, say one person, say the consumer views your business model is very different than how you view your own business. And um, it doesn't, go, going back to our point before, it doesn't necessarily mean that one of you is correct or incorrect in how you view it, right? So your consumer might say, hey, I go to Brookbush because I want a certified personal trainer certification without spending $800 up front. Yep. And you might say, well, that's not my whole intent of the courses, but you know, hey, if that's what that person values, then hey, you know, that, that, that's all you need. Um, so things can be a little bit different to each person and yet still have the same overall goal or intent, I'll say. Um, yeah. Um, either way, it wasn't worded as good as you would have put it. Um, there's my five cent vocabulary word of the day. Perfect. Good. <laughs> but um, as we start to wrap this up here, Brent, it's been amazing having you on the podcast. We've talked about a lot of different things from starting with a little bit of functional movement assessment, but really getting into the details and the systems and the data that goes into why we do what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And you've definitely pushed or challenged my own line of thinking slightly, which I think that's kind of what you always do when you're on a podcast based on what I've heard from you in the past. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks that uh, you want people to really take away? Yeah, like I'm, I'm an optimist. You know, I think things are getting better. If for any reason you think things are not getting better all the time, you're not looking at history in a large enough arc. Um, you know, I hope I can help a lot of people, you know, to your point of, of the position I usually take. Uh, if I'm going to steal from the story brand, a story brand, which is a great book, you know, we at the Brookbush Institute really try to put ourselves in the position of Yoda, not Luke Skywalker, <laughs> right? You're Luke Skywalker. The practitioner is the hero. I'm the guy in the back going, hey, hey, like if you just if you just moved your foot this way, you know, like if you just concentrated on this, you could look like even more of a hero. Oh, do you need to give me credit? No, 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 no. You you do your thing, you know. And I hope I hope people realize how hard we are trying to to make education better. I hope they realize that my goal is not not to go out there and like make people upset or challenge preconceived notions. Like we're just trying to put a systematic approach out there. Even when you see stuff that like goes, goes against the grain, really all we're doing is publishing a conclusion from research. If it happens to go against the grain, we publish it. If it doesn't, we publish it. We just don't care, right? Like we're just evidence-based. Like there's no bias there. We try to be unbiased. Um, I hope you guys get on the site. I think you guys will love it. Brookbushinstitute.com um 160 plus courses they're pre-approved for cecs we got the three certifications it's like netflix for movement professions every course you take counts towards cecs and certification so you know you're knocking out two birds with one stone we do have some live workshops hopefully live workshops come back now that covid seems to kind of be over um it's been a little rough for live workshops we do have zoom workshops too if you want like a 
live experience from your living room. Um, keep thinking, keep working, keep doing your thing. For sure. And we'll link to uh, Brookbush Institute on social media and the website below. So if you want to go and sign up, you can just click there in case you uh, missed Please that there. Sign up. <laughs> stuff all everything i've talked about costs money so at the end of the day well remember and, that that 1999 a month doesn't go into my pocket it it, uh, it funds accreditations and web dev and you know content development and all of the other stuff i mean i pay myself a little salary but you know we obviously can't do sales or promotions much because at 1999 a month there's not a whole lot of you can't there. beat it yeah like, and it's I mean, totally worth the discounted money. all the time so <laughs> um yeah man i mean it's it's been great talking to you i appreciate the fact that you've let me get into some of the deeper logic and and why we do what we do and it's good you know like i i hope people realize like as an industry we just need to be nicer we need to be more systematic in our approach you know thank you so much for listening to this episode of the brown body health and fitness podcast if you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.